Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of MGR Unplugged. My guest today is a very honest and inspirational man. His name is Anthony Doc Amin. Who is he? Well, he's a combat veteran who was severely wounded in 2008 while operating in Afghanistan. As a result of his injuries, he went through 34 surgeries to reconstruct several parts of his body. However, the lower half of his left leg had to be amputated. He's been featured in the Huffington Post, People Magazine, and the New York Times, among other publications, and he's also the recipient of the Purple Heart Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal with Combat Valor Distinction and two Veteran of the Year Awards. I have to tell you that this conversation is a little intense at times as we recount the most uh, excruciating times, easy for me to say, of his life. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please leave us a comment for him or for all other combat veterans who are in need of our support as they return home from duty. Um, This is a conversation that I really enjoyed, and I hope you do the same. Let's take a listen. Okay, well, Anthony, thank you for coming and uh, joining me. We have a lot of things to uh, discuss today, and uh, it's been a long time uh, waiting for this. We tried to do it before, uh, I think it was before um, Memorial Day, and then we both got busy with all the things going on. So, uh, But I'm glad that we finally got together. Today is actually a Friday, and actually it's Flag Day in the U.S., um, so um, before the weekend, so it's great. Um, thanks for coming. And uh, let's get right to it. So, so before um, we get started, I wanted to go back a little bit to your story as far as where you were born, where you were raised, and everything else. I know I've known you for years, just just seeing you locally. Where, where we live in uh, Awatuki, which is a section of Phoenix, in Arizona. Uh, but um, were you born here in Arizona, in Phoenix, or what's your uh, your background? So I was actually, uh, and thank you for having me. I was uh, born in Kansas City, Missouri, oh. in a county called Clay County, and uh, don't remember much of it. I was I was a little baby, and we shortly thereafter moved to uh, uh, I want to say what you know Texas. Uh, my mom and dad are both from Lubbock, Texas. They went okay. to Lubbock High School. They right. were high school sweethearts, and then somehow they ended up in in Missouri for a very short while. But then we they moved right back to Texas, and so I grew up in Midland, Odessa, and San Antonio, Texas before moving out here to uh, Phoenix in 1991. 1991. So what year were you born? I was born in 1981. 81. Okay, so you're a young guy. I'm uh, almost born in 64, so I feel like I'm talking to a little kid now. <laughs> 81. Okay, great. So you moved to Arizona. And did you always live in Phoenix in this area, or you, you've been kind of moving around? I've been in Owatuki uh, ever since really? you know, early 90s, yeah. See, 91. I actually moved to Owatuki from uh, Washington, D.C. in 93. So we probably kind of moved... A similar times. I, I didn't live in this house that we're now or this place. Uh, I used to live, actually, this area didn't even exist back in 92, 93. In fact, <laughs> that's funny because the house that my mom and dad still live in was the same house that my brother and I grew up in. And uh, he's a couple of years older than I. We, we grew up in that home and uh, Crystal Canyon, just a few developments uh-huh. away, they were still building the ho- the homes next to us. My dad bought one of the first properties in right. there yeah, that this, was standing. This, this place was also didn't exist. We we bought this place um, when it was just a development because I used to live down uh, by Elliott and all this area there and uh, by the point and all this area. So so anyways, this area didn't exist. But yeah, I've been here in Abutuki since. Uh, 93 actually so that's good so so you came here you probably went to local schools as well right like uh the uh tempe uh monta vista monta vista elementary school okay uh Akimal, uh middle school and desert vista high school desert vista and then i went to uh uh, what is it called? Uh, Mesa Community College. Okay. You know, but that didn't, we'll, we'll probably get to that later, but yeah. I, I didn't do too well in that school and okay. that's what, you know, 
So you 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 had a you have brother sister siblings? Um, yeah, my my brother Aaron, he's two years older than I. He actually just turned forty a okay. few days ago. So okay, all right, good. So so um, so you you grew up here, normal you know normally upbringing. Anything? What did your your father do? What did they do for a living? Yeah, so my uh, my mom and dad both were pharmaceutical sales reps. Um, worked for all the big companies. Just mm -hmm. name one. They they probably worked for them. They, they were kind of always growing in their roles and transitioning with different companies and mm -hmm. you know pharmaceuticals okay. um, back in the 80s and 90s was a was a big industry it was mm -hmm. kind of the boom um and uh when my dad retired from pharmaceutical sales he ended up uh you know kind of walking away from that industry and be always wanted to be a cop since he was a kid and became a oh, uh, really? became a uh, highway patrol officer here in, in the state of arizona okay. Awesome. Uh, and speaking of, I mean, what, um, when you were growing up as a kid, what things attracted you as far as uh, what, you know, typical thing, what you want to do when you grow up? I mean, when you're a kid, I mean, like in my case, my, I come also from a military family um, and, um, you know, three generations. So my dad was in the Air Force in Spain and I always wanted to be a pilot. You know, I love the fact of being a Air Force pilot and all that stuff. And then I didn't make it, so that's fine. <laughs> but I ended up driving cars instead. But um, but yeah, what, what, what did you like to, uh, what, what were you planning when you were growing up? I mean, what was your goal? Or I was super hyperactive as a kid. I had a lot of energy and just it was every which way you can imagine. Um, but I really did at an early age, one of, I think it was my second grade teacher. Her name was Miss Gonzalez. She said to our, uh, our class, she said, what do you guys want to be when you grow up and yeah. why? And she wanted us to draw on an eight by 10 or eight by 11 uh, piece of paper. Uh -huh. We were supposed to color and draw a picture of whatever we wanted to be. Oh, that's and cool. it gave her a chance to grade papers and stuff in the corner right, while right. we were actively coloring these things out. And it goes around the circle and it ends up to me and I'm, you know, showcasing what I drew. And it was a man wearing a gray suit and a red tie and he's standing with a microphone. Wow. And it was a stand-up comedian. I thought I'd be... No way. I thought I'd want to be telling jokes for a living. <laughs> I wish I had that piece of paper. It's gone now, but it'd be... Why, I, why, why did you want to be I'd a visit, comedian? I mean, this is something that you you have seen some stand-up comedy. Did you like it or... I just love making people laugh. There's yeah, something no, about I saw, I saw a cool thing. being the center of attention, making people yeah. laugh. Like, I liked being that guy, you know? Uh -huh. But, but um, yeah, it didn't Were you happen. kind of uh, the typical jokester when you were growing up with your friends and all that? I was a troublemaker. I was yeah, the class yeah. clown for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Yes, so prankster. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, all right. So obviously, you didn't become a comedian at least uh, uh, by profession. Uh, you did other stuff. So, um, so then you were in high school. Um, high school experience was good. Everything uh, normal. When, when, um, so, so let's get into the the post high school uh, time. You went to. Uh, you said you went to uh, Mesa Community College. So, uh, what? At that point, what career choice did you have and where, what made you go to, you know, make that choice? Without getting too detailed, I was partying a lot and that was, um, I was, I was in need of guidance and direction in my life at that time. And, um, you know, I was like 18, 19 years old going to a community college and, you know, partying and girls were my priority. My education was far from a priority at that mm -hmm. time in my life. So, um, you know, and I was in between jobs a lot and just trying to, I was trying to probably find purpose and through all sure, of that Sure, I mean, stuff, everybody goes through that at some Trying point. to find, you know, my circle of friends. And at that time, my circle of friends were, you know, just other partiers and mm -hmm. just guys were all squirreling around, you know. Um, but then, uh, I'm not sure what your further uh, bullet points are, but as far as, you know, you know, 9-11 had taken place. Right. I was in between jobs at the time. 
I was living with my mom and dad. Um, and, uh, and I was in between apartments at the time. I was in between school. So I was living with my parents. So we're talking about 2001 then. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Uh, I had probably partied the night before and I was still sleeping the, the next morning and uh, the morning of 9-11, of September 11th, 2001, my mom was crying and yelling at the same time. And when you hear that, it's, mm -hmm. you don't forget it. Yeah, yeah. And so was it was a mixture of crying and yelling. And she turned on my TV and said, Anthony, wake up, we're under attack. Yeah. I'll never forget that moment. No, I, I think... And right at remembers. that moment, yeah. she points to the TV and says, look, and I said, what do you mean we're under attack? Like, and, and it, I don't mean to sound funny, but like, I'm like, like what aliens? Like, what are you yeah. talking about? Mm -hmm. You're, mm -hmm. you're acting Being hysterical. Surreal. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were, you were, um, 18 or I'm trying to remember how old I was. I'm trying to do the math in my head. Our listeners can probably figure it out faster than me. But, right. Right. Yeah. But basically you but, were basically after high school, right after she woke me up and I kind of wrapped up, you know, was able to to open up my eyes and look, she pointed at the TV screen and that's right when that second plane hit that second tower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How surreal. Yeah, that was, that was incredible. I, I remember exactly what I was too. I was getting ready to go to work back then. I, I was working for another company and uh, I was actually in front of the TV. I had just finished. I usually work out in the morning. I was working out in my backyard. And then I came inside. I usually come inside and kind of cool off a little bit. And usually I had, I think it was the Today Show, one of these morning shows on, and I see that. And the TV volume was off, but I could see the, the breaking news and all these things. And, and it was just, uh, I, I mean, you say that it's, it's kind of funny or surreal, but yeah, when you're under attack like that, you feel like, oh, it was like a small plane that hit the World Trade Center or something. And then it's like, wait a minute, there's like a second one. And then this is like the, the, the Pentagon and all that stuff. It was, it, it was shocking. And I remember going to work that morning and it was like a ghost town, like, uh, by then the airports were completely shut down. There was no air traffic in the entire nation. And uh, I remember going to work, I had to drive through our local Sky Harbor airport. And usually you see all these activities on planes flying overhead, landing, taking off, and it was like dead. And I was like, wow, what's happening here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. So, so back to, um, so, so you, that was the morning. And then at that point, did you decide what you were going to study? Um, Uh, did that obviously it made an impact on your life too, but it probably made made you change your mind as far as what you wanted to do, or maybe you had to change your directions. But it, it in a weird way, 9-11 inspired me, motivated me to 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 start looking and talking to recruiters uh, mm -hmm. about going into the armed forces and mm -hmm. fighting against those that were wanting to okay. you know do ill intent to this country, and so. Uh, Uh, a few select members of the circle of friends that I was hanging out with at that time, one of, uh, one of whom actually joined the army very, mm -hmm. very quickly after 9-11. Uh, the Navy was the recruiting office that I ended up talking to and felt comfortable with, but it was just before talking to any of the, um, the five branches. My buddy Brian actually uh, walked into a recruiter with the army, signed up, enlisted, got home from boot camp right around the time that I started to have conversations with the recruiters. And mm -hmm. I saw the difference that boot camp made in his life. Sure. He, he, he left Brian came home a different man. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's, that was as inspiring. Far as maturity and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. It was inspiring. And so, uh, that was kind of what validated my decision-making mm -hmm. at that time. And I was quick to go back to the Navy and say, sign me up. So, so do you choose Navy, um, for a reason or did you have any preference or 
it's kind of a funny story. So uh, right across from Mesa Community College, it's no longer there, but they used to have all five branches next to each other. Mm-hmm. So I just walked into the Marine Corps office. This guy had his high and tight uh, sleeves of tattoos. The mm-hmm. guy was like 6'6", 250. Sailor type. <laughs> no, he scared me. He was just very uh, intimidating. And so I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm right for this. He, uh, or I then walked into the uh, Air Force. It smelled like Chinese food because there's a little Chinese food spot. They've got Stuffy. delivery. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, this place smells. They didn't greet me. They were eating their food. That was more important to them than talking to me about joining and stuff. Right. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm off. Then I go to the army and the, they were just giving me backpacks and pins and bumper stickers and all this marketing materials. And right, I'm like, just right. too much. So I finally, I'm like, all right, this is it. I go into the Navy's recruiting office and the guy's like, hey, my name's Anthony. What's your name? I'm like, Anthony. He's like, ah, oh, we are right. Oh, wow. We were meant to be. <laughs> But they sold me with customer service. Mm-hmm. At that time in my life, I was doing work in retail, waiting tables and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So customer service to me is what won me over because they were taking good care of me on a personal That's level. a good lesson for, for the recruiters too, as far as, you know, like they probably were a little overwhelmed, especially given the, the circumstances on the post 9-11. But at the same time, you know, they, they can't take people for granted. And then, like you said, you, you, you kind of, uh, focus on the customer service, so the attention to client detail, you know, versus you, 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 your your name counts as opposed to just being like, uh, okay, right here, you know, like you're just a number, you know. Right. So right, uh, and that's how I felt. I felt like a number at the other four branches. Uh, so when I went into the uh, ultimately walked into the Navy, they just warmed me up, and yeah, it was a very personal experience. And the one thing I wish out of that though, because I was a deck seaman for the first two years be- before I became a hospital corpsman, I wish they would have told me how. You know, I didn't enjoy being a deck seaman, but they basically told me it's the most glorifying job you'll ever have in the Navy. And I get there and I'm like, oh, this is not glorifying at all. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. They, they upsold you a little bit there. Uh, so so you were, you said hospital court. Um, do you have a, an affinity towards medicine or, or anything related to that or... I grew up in a household, you know, my mom, dad, and then eventually my brother ended up being a pharmaceutical sales rep as himself. Right. And so I, I, I grew up in a household of healthcare mm-hmm. and they're always talking about healthcare and the trends in the healthcare industry and the market. And I just, it, I just felt like that was, that was something that I could, you know, wrap my head around and embrace uh, as far as, you know, jobs in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they, when they said, uh, here are the th- few options that you have to choose from as far as your job mm-hmm. uh, when hospital corpsman was jumping out at me. Right. Plus at that time we had, we were uh, right when the, the, the war in Iraq took place in, you know, April, 2003, uh, we were actually our ship USS Dubuque. Our job was to take Marines from Pendleton in California to the Persian Gulf, you know, and then drop them off and then do figure eights in the North Arabian Sea and in Persian Gulf until they're done. Then we pick them up and take them all the way back home to California. So that was our job, essentially. We did other stuff too, but um, one of the corpsmen that we took over there was just a super cool guy, and uh, he offered on-the-job training to anyone that was interested in becoming, at one point, a corpsman. So I worked with him, and he was just such a cool guy, and he kind of inspired and motivated me to eventually become one myself. So, so do you have much um, selling experience or, or before? I mean, do you were you kind of apprehensive of saying I'm going to be on a ship for like months at a time? And I mean, that's kind of like a big shock for a person that grows up in the city, and all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, you know uh, isolated in a in a floating platform for months, basically, which is surrounded by other 
people, you know, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was a pretty amazing experience. And that the word experience is what resonates with me is, uh, I had no experience at all with right. being on a ship and any of that stuff, being in the ocean yeah. at long periods of time. But that's what was appealing to me is that experience in and of itself. And so uh, I'm really glad that I chose to make it because uh, I'll never forget those experiences. So did you find one from the time that you were talking to recruiters and all that stuff, and I'm assuming you did some training like boot camp and all that, um, and then you find yourself actually just being, you know, on a ship and on was that what you expected? Like you said, it was a little bit different, but do you find yourself like everything happens so fast and it's like, wow, just two, three months ago, whatever, I was just home and now I'm like here, you know, like that must be some kind of a quick transition uh, mentally and psychologically and everything for you to kind of so fast making such a quick change, you know? Sure. Uh, Especially you know, at that age because right. you are super young by then. Boot camp was about eight weeks long um, and I still have buddies from boot camp that I'm still friends with today, which is mm -hmm. pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, shortly after the eight week period, they let me go home on leave just to kind of hang out with what friends. What was the uh, boot camp? Was it local or was it? was it? Great Lakes, Illinois. Okay. So just outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I graduated. My family flew out from Phoenix, you know, my mom, dad, brother, and, uh, got to see me graduate at, in Great Lakes. Then we all go home together. Um, I spent a couple of weeks here in Phoenix just to hang out with friends and family. And mm -hmm. then my dad and I drove to San Diego and there I was to, to be dropped off. And wow. it, it happened that it happens that, or just so happens that um, when we got there, my ship had already left. The orders that they gave me were a little bit late as mm -hmm. far as like when the ship was supposed to leave. So it already departed because of the war was, the, the whole thing was right, kind of heating, right. heating up. So the ship had to leave. They couldn't wait until the order date. Mm -hmm. And so um, they had me in the barracks for a few weeks, actually waiting to collect not just myself, but multiple other sailors right. from multiple different ships that, that were already still... left, that were already right. deployed. And what they did was they flew us literally across the world and then dro uh, they dropped us off into a rib boat in the middle of the ocean. I was wearing a Bob Marley shirt. <laughs> literally wearing a Bob Marley, a red Bob Marley shirt uh -huh. in the Persian Gulf. They dropped me down into this rib boat, this black rib boat. And there are these guys from my ship wearing their full uniform with weapons and everything else. They dropped me in my Bob Marley shirt into this boat going over these big waves to this huge gray ship. And I'm like, that's my home for the next two and a half that years. That must be amazing. And that was a really cool feeling though. Because that was my first sailor experience was being dropped into a boat in the mm -hmm. middle of the when ocean. When you say dropped, what does that mean? Like, I mean, do you repel down or something? Or yeah, they, they repel you down with another sailor that's like from the air crew. Okay. And okay. They, they kind of, they harness you. They, they, you know, right. they clip you, you in and everything. Harnesses on belts and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And they drop, they slowly drop. So they really dropped you down. Okay, I didn't they know. That was like the helicopter kind of like sea landed or did something. Just how it sounds is just how it happens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And then and the funny part I'll never forget is I was wearing a red Bob Marley shirt. They dropped me in there. They took me to the boat. And as we're getting closer to the boat, the boat's getting bigger and bigger. Sure. And I didn't realize how big these ships were because, yeah, you're in the Navy. You're in boot camp and you're learning about all this stuff. But until you actually physically see it with your own eyes, it, it's, it's mind-blowing, actually, how big some of those ships are. Hey, they are. They are big. I actually... Um 
back in Spain, uh, the, the Sixth Fleet was usually there, the Mediterranean, and then there was the uh, aircraft carriers that used to come and dock near the beach, beach areas in the summer, like a little break for the sailors would just go off and have fun and all that stuff. And then they allow some guests, like a, they, they allow each sailor to gather like two or three guests to take him on board and sh- give him a little tour stuff. And uh, so I went to um, the the Forestal and back different aircraft carriers back then. And, and I mean, just uh, those things are like floating cities. I mean, it's huge. I mean, they have like 50 planes on deck. I mean, it's like <laughs> humongous. And then they give you a good tour. So yeah, they are they're definitely huge. Um, so, so you go there. This is, what year is this now? Is this already 2002 or? This is... I want to say it's the end of 2002. Right. Like October 2002, maybe uh, a little after. And that. with all this, how did your family react? I mean, you decided this at a very young age and you basically felt the need to just join the uh the armed forces, the navy in this case. Uh did, did you find any um any backlash from your family or was your family totally supportive and they were kind of supportive but uh, like a little bit apprehensive. Uh, how did that work? Um, if anyone was apprehensive, it was probably my mom a little bit, just because you know she's your mom. You know mm-hmm. she's mama bear. And uh, but but at the end of the day, I, I think that they are all very very proud of the decision that I made, and they also respected the decision I made because of the time that we were in. You mm-hmm. know, nine eleven just took place, and there a lot of right. things were heating up in the Middle East. A lot of questions, a lot of gray area, and I think that's my where the apprehension might have come from. But I was I was excited for a new. You know, a new... Uh, right. So how long were you... Um, I mean, obviously, this is 2002. Uh, communications are not like they are now in 2019. So there was no... Uh, I mean, you could communicate with your family and, and people back home, but uh, it wasn't really as easy as it is today. So how, how did that work? I mean, when you were out there, how did you keep in touch with family and friends and everything else? And this is before MySpace, even. This is before right. social media, right? So uh, email was mainly the only form mm-hmm. of communication that we had. And then we also had... Uh, a chance to call um, every now and again. But when, if I recall, when I was on the ship, we didn't get to call. We had a satellite phone, mm-hmm. but you can only use it like maybe once a month. Right. Um, so the satellite phone was only to be used about once a month and it never worked because yeah. there's only one phone for like a thousand people. And those, back then there was probably only one satellite too. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what I recall is uh, emails. And there were actually times where the the captain or the, uh, the, the CO or the XO on the of the ship would actually get on the loudspeaker, the the PA system on the ship, and they'd actually say, "Hey, uh, all hands on deck, no communication." Right. Silence. So it's like a black, yeah, blackout right, period. Yeah. And so uh, sometimes those would last up to like 10, 14 days. And our families during those times would be like, "What's going on? They're not communicating with me. I don't know what's going on." I do recall my family at that time; they were always very nervous. Um, so, so when was your first experience with a little more of uh, like combat? I mean, you you were there, and obviously you were in a support type uh, uh, hospital court stuff. But uh, obviously, you you see combat very close. So, was that kind of when, when did that happen? And how did you react to that when you say, "Holy shit, this is for real"? <laughs> you know, this is not a movie anymore. Right. So uh, the invasion of Iraq took place uh, April two thousand three, and that's when I was out there on the ship. Um, you know, I was out there for. I want to say like a good eight, nine months, came home, you know, did a lot of training, fast forward a little bit, uh, a few years later, it's 2008. Now it's April of 2008. And, uh, I was deployed to Afghanistan with second battalion, seventh Marines, first Marine division. And I was with Fox company and Fox company was, uh, in an area called Nalzad in Helmand province, Helmand province during 2008, we were up against the third largest Taliban headquarters 
they're doing a lot of reinforcing of their of their enemy troops and um i i, I recall that um you know uh, the brits were actually there fighting as well in the same area of operation and we get we get to this little area um and Hesco, uh, are you familiar with like a Hesco barrier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have to like fill it with with sandbags right. and stuff, right. and then right. so there was no Hesco barrier around the area that we were supposed to be sleeping and living in for the next you mm-hmm. know six to eight months, and we had to literally from the moment we got to Nauzad, we had to start filling sandbags and start building walls for, to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. So from the minute we touched foot in our in our area, we had to start building our 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 home if you will. And so uh, we built um, watchtowers. We built HESCO barriers like walls. Mm-hmm. And we had to get some tarps for uh, for roofs. Cover, yeah. Yeah, we didn't have any any ceilings. It was mm-hmm. like a bombed, a bombed building. What, what time of the year is this? Is summer, winter? April of 2008. Okay. And so we're in the middle of Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, and that, that was a completely different experience than being on an air-conditioned ship. Right. You know, comfy cot. You know, you've got your bed. It's made for you. It's metal. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, uh, you've got, uh, you know, water to brush your teeth with. You know, this right. was completely different. So um, we had to, to keep your water bottles cool. You would actually get a sock. You would uh, dip it in water or, you know, dump some water onto that sock. Get it nice and wet. And you drop it. Drop a water bottle inside that sock twist it uh-huh. and then hang that somewhere where it can, it can sit under some shade. Yeah. And that's how you would cool your water bottles. Otherwise it'd be like drinking hot water because mm-hmm. it's how, how hot it got out there. So being in Afghanistan, you're still obviously with the Navy. Um, and then you're building all this kind of um, home shelter, you know, barricade, you know, for you guys. And then, um, what was what was a typical day there like? I mean, uh, what, I mean, you, you describe a day. I mean, for for people that never seen war, basically, other than movies, it's hard to describe or, or to understand what it is like. Like, like you said, I mean, just for the water example. But you wake up, and then you don't really know what your day is gonna be like because you have a lot of things that happen that are not expected. And then, basically, everything is. Uh, improvise, so to speak, you know, within, within the planning. As much, uh, as much as the chain of command wanted to schedule things, for example, right. uh, guys being on posts and then being relieved from their duty so that they can go eat or go sleep, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone's a part of a team. Everyone's part of a fire team. Everyone's part of a squad. Everyone's part of a platoon. And so uh, you break it down into different categories, mm-hmm. right? And so as a unit, we're all there as one, but we're all split into these little tiny uh, scheduled categories. Mm-hmm. One of which is quick reaction, uh, the, the quick reaction, reaction force. QRF is what they call it uh, for the acronym. But QRF is usually the team that goes out there to relieve a team that's up against the enemy. Mm-hmm. So uh, QRF is also, if let's say there's a helicopter that needs to touch down, drop off some supplies, but then they need to pop up and get back out to, mm-hmm. let's say, Kandahar Air Station. Our job is to, as QRF is to uh, secure a parameter for that helicopter to drop down, deliver the s- such supplies, and then pop up and leave. And it, uh, they would actually do that multiple times throughout mm-hmm. the week. But a typical day for us was not a typical day for most. Uh, at that time, things were heating up quite a bit in Afghanistan and Ma, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, or 2-7, um, we're up against the enemy daily. Um, 
firefights, uh, a lot of guys in Humvees, mm-hmm. you know, so um, mounted patrols. And then there's dismounted patrols where you're on foot and you're actually walking through um, this abandoned city. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Zad, I, I, and don't quote me, I'm going off of memory here. It's 10 years ago, but uh, I'm pretty sure now Zad had, had about 25, maybe 30,000 people mm-hmm. residing in its community. And it's very similar to the topography of Awatuki here in Phoenix. Right, right. Very similar, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and every, uh, they were fled out by um, by the enemy's presence of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And you'd see some local villagers, some local farmers, maybe some local children playing in the streets and stuff. But when we got close and you didn't see anything, you knew something was going to happen. Right. There were even times where we went into a, an abandoned building and you see a lit cigarette in a window. Mm. That's scary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And th- these are things that... You, you, they you know something that you don't know, basically. Yeah, correct. And then uh, and then there are also times where you do night patrols. Uh, everything's taking place, you know, you have firefights in the, in, the, in the mornings and afternoons and early evenings. And then a lot of... If you've ever been near a gun range, for people that have never been in combat, if you've ever been close to a gun range and you can hear that pop, pop, pop in the, mm-hmm. in the distance... You're safely away from it, but you're still close enough to know what it is and that you're near. And that pop-pop sound was constant in there. Mm-hmm. And, and now's that. Yeah. So, so that that that's that's incredible. I mean, just just kind of putting myself in that situation just gave me the chills. But uh, uh, I mean, how do you adapt to that? I mean, uh, you 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 grow up like a normal kid in an urban area, and all of a sudden you feel the call to join you know, the armed forces, and then a few years later, you're fully in combat with, with first hand and first sight of uh, people being killed. Um, and you basically, I mean, how do you fight that kind of fear, anxiety? I mean, you don't know what each day is going to happen to you or your or your friends or, or your, basically your colleagues, the people you sleep next to. And, and so how do you adapt to that? How do you adapt to the fact that every day is uncertain and you could, basically something could happen it starts in boot camp they they mentally prepare you and wire you a certain way where everyone is one you all think the same you all do the same that's why they have uniformity in the militaries because they want you to all be the same you're all equals um in the military starting in boot camp just to answer your question you've got people from all walks of life all different religions um some were brought up poor some were brought up rich but in in, in the military none of that matters mm-hmm. because at the end of the day when you're on the battlefield, you're basically a band of brothers. Absolutely, and there's there's a there's a reason why they do it the way they do it. So that that type of training, that mm-hmm. to answer your question, starts the second you get off the bus mm-hmm. on boot camp. So, so you really start yelling are at already you. in that kind of uh, mindset. That you, I mean, you don't even. Uh, they, they say that the body and your mind adapts to the circumstances, and then you kind of block off fear. You just say, "I, I need to do what I have to do." The moment you get off the bus in boot camp, mm-hmm. the second your foot and your body exits the threshold of that bus, mm-hmm. you've got one guy in this ear, one guy in this ear yelling at the top of their lungs, trying to break, mm-hmm. trying to break your mental right. barriers. And they try to do it. And they do that for eight weeks straight to the point where, right. You're gonna how break can the I do anything with two guys yelling in both of my there. ears? Right. right. And so each branch has a different level of intensity. Marine mm-hmm. Corps for sure is the, is the most... Uh, you know, and then you've got Navy SEALs. Oh my God, right, it's taking right. the Marine Corps boot camp mm-hmm. to a whole nother level. And it's, it, you know, they've got Hell right. Week and everything else on, on top of it. But you have multiple different layers of training 
within the military that prepares your brain and prepares your body to go into the midst of combat, right? So that you're comfortable in a sense Mm -hmm. with the uncomfortability. You're you're basically comfortable being uncomfortable. And there's also a term and it's a real term in the military. Um, It's called embrace the suck. There's a lot of things that are going to, that are going to suck when you're in the military. There's a lot of things in combat. They're like flat out downright going to suck. Mm -hmm. Embrace it. And so if you ever heard the term embrace the suck from somebody, they're more than likely, you know, someone that, that saw some stuff. I, I completely understand. So, so, um, oh yeah, so, so let's get to, um, your, your injury basically. Uh, I know this might be kind of mentally painful and, and you don't feel comfortable with any of these, uh, questions. Let me know, but I'm kind of very, very interested. And I think our listeners will be too, um, on how, how it happened. What was the day like you, you, you woke up like any other day, you have a mission to do, just just tell me your story so we're you know in the thick of it and there are a lot of we're in the muck you know so to speak in 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 alzad afghanistan in 2008 uh, the morning was july 21st of 2008 and we uh we prepared to do an ambush on the taliban and uh everything that we did leading up to that moment was successful little did we know they were reinforcing their troops behind the wall that we were um under the impression that we had successfully gotten, gotten mm-hmm. there, you know, and, um, we were doing what they call a BDA, a battle damage assessment and kind of figuring out what kind of damage was caused and what those results were, how successful our mission was and all that stuff. Right. And then we just started getting hit from all different sides cause they were reinforcing. And before you know it, we're in the midst of battle. We're in the midst of combat. So, so you say we, how many troops were with you at that point? You or? know, going off of memory, I don't know exactly. Um, uh, there was multiple different, mm-hmm. um, parts of our, our, you know, our unit was scattered about that morning on, mm-hmm. on the battlefield. And, uh, you know, different Humvees were exploding, uh, get different guys, different explosions. Guys were getting hurt. Lots of gunfire, mortar fire. It was, it was a very intense morning. And, um, one of our Marines at that, uh, that, that morning sat on an IED. Um, and you can imagine, you know, the damage that that can cause anyone. Um, and as a corpsman, all the training that I was just referring to a minute ago, I've went through so much intense, fierce, um, thorough medical training to prepare me for, for things like that. And I was very quick to want to help this Marine, but for whatever reason, because of where we were pinned, we weren't able to move the, I can't remember Air Force or Marine Corps jets were going to be flying above us and dropping a 500 pound bomb on the enemy. And for us all to just stand still, mm-hmm. stay, stay put until that bomb had been dropped. Once that bomb dropped, we all picked up and started running. Mm-hmm. Well, leading up to that moment when the bomb dropped from the, from the, from the jet, I was finally allowed to run with a few guys because I had had a polis litter. A mm-hmm. polis litter is like a canvas tarp that four guys on each corner can hold okay. and drag or carry a body okay. to, let's say, an ambulance or mm-hmm. a Humvee or Mm-hmm. Or, or something to that effect. And so that was overall what I was called to help another corpsman who was giving an airway um, operate, you know, like a neck procedure. Um, yeah. Aero. Yeah. And uh, he successfully did that, kind of revived this Marine for, you know, 
short, short period of time. And it was around that time that our platoon sergeant at the time lifted his, his hand and gave the pause mm-hmm. with his, sign. with his arm. Yeah. The pause sign with his arm. So we all took a knee and stopped for a minute. And as soon as he said, go, 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 because that shockwave from the bomb that was right. just dropped, it literally goes beneath your feet. You can see the ripple effect on the actual desert coming closer to you, and it rumbles your it, whole body. It rumbles under your feet, yeah, yeah. And as soon as that happens, he goes, go, 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 go. So we all started booking it, and then just moments later, I stepped on an IED myself. And shortly thereafter, and in that moment, as painful as it was, my brain wasn't processing it because it's all happening so fast. My rifle that I was holding in my hand, part of it disintegrated. I was holding on to the muzzle with my left hand because my trigger finger is my right, my mm-hmm. right index finger. And these two fingers, as you can see here. Let's talk about his ring finger, yeah. Yeah, my ring finger, I was, I was holding it in my hand. It was like, right. it was almost off. And uh, that was from the blast coming upwards. And so I got peppered with shrapnel. I've got dirt all over me it's hard to hear things around me because that ringing sound, mm-hmm. just like you see in the movies, but this is real. I'm yeah. physically feeling Well, yeah, I mean, you, you had a explosive device right under you, so your ears are totally oh, shot. Shot. And yeah. so it's just a, a very hardcore ringing. And, and not only that, you're totally shaken up from... All I can hear, all I can hear, honestly, was the muffled voices of men yelling at me not understanding what they're saying because my ears were literally that, that far gone. Right. But was hearing myself yell at the top of my lungs. That, mm-hmm. That's the only thing I remember hearing was the ring, guys yelling, and myself yelling. How, uh, w- w- were you close to other people or did it just affect you when you stepped on that IED? No, there was a few guys behind me and they got peppered with shrapnel as well. Okay. Uh, you know, one of which got his, his head rung pretty, pretty hard. And then uh, and he was another corpsman. There's another Marine behind me who actually had the helmet cam Hmm. that saw all of this take place. So there's actually footage of there's this There's actually happening. footage. I, have, I, from the moment, I've only seen it one time, and I, I actually asked that, that, that it's never shared with me ever again. Right, right. Oh, I can imagine. So, so how much do you remember? I mean, you obviously gave me everything that you remember, but after that, I mean, you were obviously significantly injured after that. And when do you start realizing the scope of your injuries or, or the, the extent of the damage? One of the Marines, he started pulling me by my flak jacket, mm-hmm. dragging me uh, backwards away from the actual crater that the bomb had created where mm-hmm. I was laying and trying to combat crawl away from. I remember him flipping me on my back and then just dragging me with, with uh, from my flak jacket. And it was in that moment... <sighs> It was in that moment where I was hoping, hoping and praying to God, and not necessarily in that moment praying, but in my mind, I'm, I'm hoping that they're, they weren't going to drag my back over an IED. It's hard to, hmm. that, that was my very thought in that moment okay. was they're going to drag me right over another one. Okay. Oh man, that's, that's, that, it's a hard feeling to even think about now. Sorry. But shortly thereafter, the ringing started to kind of dissipate a little bit and I can actually make out what these guys were yelling. Hey, how are you? What's going on? What's going on? And I kept yelling my right leg, my right leg. And it was my left that got blown off. You know, it was my left basically ankle down that, Mm -hmm. that pretty much got blown off. And so my right leg between my kneecap and my ankle was my, my, my tib, uh, my tib fib was completely shattered. And so it was like they, they refer to it as a wet noodle. It mm-hmm. was just kind of flopping all over. Right. 
but they still had to get me and this other Marine that I was running to get to on a seven ton. Cause that's the only vehicle that they had available for us to get to. At that point we had Estonians. Mm-hmm. Um, the Estonian troops were fighting there with us uh, alongside the Brits. And um, they had a, they had kind of like a medical Humvee, mm-hmm. like an ambulance, so to speak. And so they started working on the Marine that I was running to save first because he was in a worse spot than I was. So they started working on him, trying to get his pain under control. And then they started to get mine under control. And that's when I faded out. They had given me some ketamine mixed with the morphine that the mm-hmm. other guys were giving me. Right. They finally get us to a Kazabak, you know, and the QRF that morning mm-hmm. helped secure a parameter that the Kazabak can come pick us up and get us to Bastion Air Base, which is uh, where they were going to operate on mm-hmm. us. And I guess on the way to Bastion is... Did, uh, at this point, did you... Is when the Marine passed on the, on the helicopter. Uh, but, but at that point, did you figure out that you were going to lose uh, part of your leg or worsening until uh, later in the, oper- in the operation that they gave you the news? Or how much did you know about the extent of your injury? Were you kind of hoping that you'll be okay? Or what was your mental state? So that, that- uh, well, the mental state was kind of blurry. Um, not in the sense of combat, but in the sense of uh, literally being blurry just because of all the morphine that the... You know, my Marines, when they saw their, their doc right. in pain, a lot of us carry the, the morphine on us. Mm-hmm. They were hooking me and the other guy up. They were just stabbing us in the leg right. and giving us morphine. And so by the time they gave me the ketamine, my brain was pretty much, right. I, I was fading out pretty okay. quick. So it wasn't until you were back at the hospital and you woke up from When surgeries. I woke up from surgery, I looked down and my, I had a stump wrapped in gauze. Mm-hmm. So... And, that must have been like, I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. No. I remember actually shortly thereafter, um, one of my closest, one of my closest Marines actually, um, he was on his way of exiting out of the Marine Corps. And so regardless of deployment or not, for whatever reason, they gave him an option. Do you want to stay and finish out this tour? Do you want to go home? And he was like, I'm done. My orders are here. I'm done. So he was going to go home and be done with the, uh, the Marine Corps. Um, but to, to see his face in that moment, hmm. yeah, it was, it was good to have a close buddy with me during that time. Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of funny to lighten things up a, a little bit in that moment where you wake up and you see your left leg wrapped or stump wrapped in gauze, knowing that you're an amputee and your life's forever changed, knowing that you're the combat medic for all these Marines that are still hurt and needing your help out there. And you're, miles away. Um, I wanted a cigarette. All I wanted was a freaking cigarette, you know? And mm-hmm. so, uh, I kept, I, when I woke up, that was the first thing I asked for because my mind's processing all this stuff. I'm Absolutely. finally able to process and I'm mm-hmm. starting to stress myself out. Mm-hmm. And then not to, not to mention I'm an amputee now. Right. And so my buddy, my buddy, uh, Grant, He's the Marine that, that I woke, kind of woke up to, and he, he made sure that I got a cigarette, even though that's completely not okay with the hospital standards, and especially after a big surgery like that. Mm-hmm. But he made sure I got wheeled out outside, and I got to smoke a few cigarettes with uh, him. And I, I got, so it's Grant Neal and a guy named Mickey. Is there, is there a protocol in this situation where they kind of talk to you uh, to say, hey, this is what happened? Like, like, coach you mentally a little bit because I mean you went in in, in 24 hours from being totally uh, active and to you know stepping over an IED and then totally being dragged up in the hospital and all of a sudden you wake up and you lost 
uh, you become an amputee. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anything that they can, they're prepared to, uh, just like in boot camp, they prepare you for whatever thing can, can happen to be tough. I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you for this kind of life-changing event, you know. Is there anything that they, uh, how, how do you cope with that? Is it just up to your mental strength to deal with it? I think so, because uh, I t I've been telling people that for the last 10 years through public speaking, through opportunities like mm -hmm. this. Um, no one, no one in the military ever prepared you to get hurt. Right. You sign the dotted line, you know at one point you can get hurt get sick or die, or, or, or die fighting for your country, but they don't prepare you for what that actually is like. And so mm -hmm. it's great that you bring that up because I think that that would be an amazing type of training that they offer to troops before they deploy so that right. if it does happen, that them themselves and their families can maybe embrace themselves for what that might look like if it mm -hmm. does. But they don't, that's something that I've never, I've never witnessed in the, you bring up a great point. And I think I think that's actually the value of like this conversation, for example. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've been, like I said, I mean, I've been close to military environments. I grew up in Air Force bases and all that stuff. Different different situation, no combat or anything. But but I always wonder, um, it, it, you can only learn so much. I mean, boot camp is great and all that. And then everybody's brothers and all that. But then when you go there on the going gets tough and shit hits the fan, basically, everything changes and people as much training as you may have people react differently to different situations especially the situations of stress and, and extreme crisis where your life is on the line our particular unit we we lost 19 marine uh i'm trying to think i think we lost 19 marines one sailor and one interpreter mm -hmm. and there is uh you know close to 200 guys that got hurt including myself 30 of which were amputees a lot of guys got messed up on this deployment and we came home uh, th those of us that came home broken, uh, a lot of them were broken mentally because mm -hmm. they didn't know how well, to, yeah. A, spiritually or mentally kind of cope with everything that they'd just gone through. And a lot of these guys are young too. I was older than half the guys that were out there. Uh, I was I was already getting, you know, I was in my late 20s where these other guys were there yeah, early still 20s young. Yeah. or in their late teens. And so um, I came home physically broken, emotionally broken and spiritually broken. And, uh, you know, that time of my life, I had 34, I've, I've had a total of 34 surgeries. I had recovery. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to pray again. I had to learn how to love again and trust again. There's so many different emotions that were involved with just becoming the guy that I am today. I mean, this last 10 years has been a journey, but I'm glad I hung in there because almost 40 men from my unit, from that same unit in Afghanistan back in 2008, they came home, maybe let's say ment mentally or spiritually broken. They didn't know how to handle those changes, and a lot of them took their own lives. Mm -hmm. uh, close to forty, right? So, so let me back up a little bit. So, so you are still in the hospital. You find it out. How long did it take for you to basically? They did they tell you we're going to take you back home, or or what, what was the conversation? Did they just wait until you recover enough to make the trip back? They didn't. It was kind of go go go. I mean, right off the battlefield, I wake up. I have that cigarette and then before you know it, I'm on a flight mm -hmm. and uh, I'm on a flight with other guys that are wounded that are going home uh, to Germany, uh, to Landstuhl, okay. Germany. Right. Usually Landstuhl is where they get these right. American troops mm -hmm. pain under control mm -hmm. enough for them to fly home and see their loved ones. And okay. it's during that time when they're in Landstuhl that they're receiving, uh, that the families are receiving the phone calls, those dreadful, dreadful phone calls. Hey, your son or daughter just got hurt. They're so, coming so, home. Yeah, so. I was going to ask you about that. So, how how did they communicate with your family? 
who did uh, did they call your family your parents i guess they both my mom and dad both received you know they lived together they received a phone call both from the marine corps as well as the navy but the navy is who showed up at their front door in full uniform right that's the, the that's the one thing that you never want to see at least they told them that you were injured or not not that but correct um I couldn't imagine oh, man, as a as a as a dad. I me can now, only, I I I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine that seeing that person coming to my front door. But wow. Um. So so then they fly you back home. You were young. You were in your twenties, late twenties. I'm assuming you weren't married yet. Mm-mm. Okay. I was single. You were single. Did you were you with a girlfriend in distance, long distance relationship? Nothing. You know, I kind of had a pen pal. Right, okay. Yeah, but you, you know, were basically I, in any serious relationship. I had a girl in Virginia that I was writing letters to and stuff. Okay. And we we're exchanging, you know, letters and pictures and stuff. That's about all. Okay, so so you came back here. And obviously, like you said, you need to learn everything again. You basically started a new life. Um, how, how did you... Um, what did you learn about yourself? When you, I mean, you, you I, I can imagine your mind must have been such a puzzle saying okay now what you know because this is something that all of a sudden just flips your world around and and makes you like whatever plans you had after war or after your tour or this or that is like totally just got out of whack and then you come back you're dealing with your injury 30 something surgeries which i'm assuming most of them happened once you came back um so what was your mindset i mean how did you adjust to all this i mean what were you finding inner strength to to cope with all these situations um looking back it's hard to it's hard to really pinpoint pinpoint but but i would say that you know, that training that we were referring to earlier was uh adapt and overcome embrace the suck mm-hmm. and there's a lot of my recovery that sucked and i just had to I, as much as I didn't want to embrace it, I didn't have a choice. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I've been given this new circumstances mm-hmm. and it's, it's, how are you going to, how are you going to react to change? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just did a lot of adapting and overcoming. You, you learn much more about yourself in these situations. You probably learn how, how much tougher you can be. And you know, God, God only gives a, you know, gives us what we can handle. And uh, I guess I can handle quite a bit you because I've definitely. gone through quite a bit. Were you much, uh, a religious person before this happened or you became much more, uh, you know, following faith after this, like believing more in God after the injury that he was, you know, supporting you or, or were you pretty religious already before, uh, when you were younger? I was raised Lutheran. Um, but you know, non-denominational, non-denominational churches when I was uh, in the in the Navy, you know, because I, tr- I was stationed all over in multiple locations, but I would, I would go to all these different, multiple different churches and, and whatnot. I tell people I was never closer to God than I was to him in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're thinking about him and praying constantly out there. Mm-hmm. And I was always praying for the guys that were about to push out right. when I was like, let's say, about to go to sleep and eat a nice warm meal. You know, I say warm meal. Yeah, eat an MRE. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would always grab my Bible and try to find some scripture to support how I was feeling and pray for these guys. And then I got hurt, and then I didn't want anything to do with God for quite some time. It, it took actually several years for me to uh, to actually realize that stepping on that IED and all the all the bullshit that I went through was actually a blessing in disguise. Yeah, that's, that's my relationship the, with God is so much stronger now. Than it, than that, it was. That's the thing that I was going to ask you too, because it definitely gives you a different perspective of life. Um, and I'm glad you said that, because a lot of people that go through these kind of uh, 
physical hardship or even mental or anything, they, they realize when you step back and you put things in perspective, you say, you know what, I feel actually blessed now or stronger as a human being just because I've been through going through all this and I have a whole new perspective in life that I've, other people I may know have, may never know, you know, and I've been tested and I've been overcoming all these obstacles and I'm better today now as a result of that than was before anything happened. You know, is that something that, that you can relate to? I mean, you feel like you have a whole new perspective? I've lived everything you just said. I've lived through it. And so uh, if you want to consider my story a testimony, then let it be a testimony. But um, I, they actually say, uh, I'm in a men's group at my church, and uh, one of our buddies, Jim Cooper, he's a, you know, he's an Army Ranger. He was, you know, major, you know, real cool guy. Well, you've got a... Uh, let your mess be your message and your test be your testimony. That's so that's so awesome. I've been telling my story to guys for 10 yeah. years, trying right. to change their hearts on how they feel about things and maybe try to inspire and motivate them to find a spirituality, find God and have a relationship with Jesus Christ because that's what I've done mm -hmm. and it healed me from the inside out over the years. So when you came back, you basically went back to your family or your parents, obviously. Um, you kind of uh, went through all the recovery and all that stuff. Um, at what point did you start um, feeling like you were basically adjusted to your new life? Uh, what, what I mean, you started um, business-wise. Did you start another company? You had a consulting agency or something that you started. What was your What was your adaptation to? Uh, how did you adapt to the civilian life after all this happened? In addition to dealing with your physical challenges. Um, um, back in 2010, I had September 2010. I had just gotten out of the service and uh i came right back to Ahwatukee where we're where we're, mm -hmm. where we're at now and uh i just started renting a home that wasn't too far from mom and dad just in case they needed to, mm -hmm. to help me physically because i was right. still kind of going through some you know physical issues um but um yeah it was during that time that i was denied some of my benefits uh social security and traumatic servicemen's group life insurance and this is the insurance policy that you're fighting for out there, right? If you die, then your family or your next of kin gets this money policy from the, the mm -hmm. Department of Defense. But I was wrongfully denied. You know, when you lose a limb, you're supposed to get X amount of dollars from the U.S. government. Um, any limb. So, so let, me, let me clarify that. So you come, from, you come from war, you are wounded with a life-changing type injury, and you're still fighting to get some kind of uh, social security benefit for the injuries that you've sustained during the service in your country so yeah a lot of us come home broken to a broken healthcare system i.e the va or social security administration and there's so many veterans that are coming home with injuries that um um i don't know some people just fall through the cracks and there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and i don't know why or how but i was one of those individuals and so i'm the kind of person that i stand up for what i believe in and um which was getting the benefits that i was due so after congressional level hearing you know, taking social security to court. I won a, a federal level hearing and, um, or I'm sorry, a congressional level hearing and won that, uh, came back here to Phoenix. And it was through that transitional period of going from, let's say San Diego, where the hearing was to Phoenix, coming back home out of the service. A lot of guys started asking me, how did you secure your benefits? And so organically I became like a, a benefits counselor to my mm -hmm. buddies that were also going through physical therapy and going through issues. 
And on how how did you do it? Did you have count, uh, legal I just, counsel or did no, you do I it just, yourself? Or I just gave them the pointers that I was given from others, and before you know it, it just de developed and evolved into something bigger than I bigger than myself. And so, um, my mom and dad, just getting back to them for a moment, when they were my caregivers here, and uh, they were flying from here in Phoenix to San Antonio, where I was going to my uh, recovery for the first couple of years. And they spent upwards of $25,000 just to be by my bedside because the DOD wasn't paying for it. The Marines or the Navy, they weren't paying for my mom and dad's travel assistance. So I had this idea to start a charitable organization to help fly families to see their healing heroes while mm -hmm. they're going through their recoveries so that they can have a support system. Right. And I also wanted to, to, to give benefits counseling to wounded warriors that were falling through the cracks. And that's what I did. I created an organization called Wings for Warriors, and we've helped nearly 5,000 people across the United States. That's amazing. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you come back with all this life-changing situation and you still have the energy and, and mind power to even set up that organization that you did, which is very successful, by the way. Uh, that, that's, that's totally mind-boggling to me. But uh, so, so you got your situation taken care of. You won the... the lawsuit against the uh, Social Security Administration. So I got my benefits. I'm all taken care of uh, in the midst of all this and growing a business, growing an organization that is now, I guess, nationally recognized, which is a blessing from God, really. Whoever thought when I made those first initial phone calls to the first team of board members that it was going to grow into a successful organization. I had no idea what I was doing. I just mm -hmm. needed some people's help. So I picked up the phone, called, and eight years later, uh, a lot of lives have been touched. And uh, to answer your question... Um, Say, remind me again just where you were going yeah yeah basically I wanted to see how you adapted from from being a war to to starting your normal civilian life back at home you know with like being a business person like you are now so part of it was telling the story like we're doing now mm -hmm. but part of it was actually having maybe to hear myself tell my own story mm -hmm. over the years through public speaking through radio and, and interviews and stuff it's it was healthy for me to be able to get that out. Right. It was almost therapeutic mm -hmm. for me to tell my story constantly so that it's almost like, okay, it was a big deal, but tell your story. So it a changes others, but it also changed yourself at the same moment mm -hmm. you're telling mm -hmm. others. And so myself hearing my own story was inspiring for myself. I know that sounds weird, but it, it actually helped heal me. And I got so busy with the organization and all the day-to-day -day admin responsibilities as its CEO that, um, and I'm managing all these different things. I felt like a puppet master. There's so many things going on. I was, I was the guy holding the strings for eight years. Um, and so managing all that stuff, it actually helped me not think about stay busy, right? It, it, it kept my brain so busy that I wasn't mm -hmm. focused on all the darkness that was, do you, do you have a, obviously we know PTSD is, is a major issue with, with, uh, you know, troops coming back and adapting to society. Do you have any, any of those issues? I mean, obviously everybody has a some certain level, but do you do you have a, a PTSD symptoms or or? I, I'm I'm pretty sure I do. Uh, not nearly. There's a lot of anger and control issues mm -hmm. when I first got mm -hmm. got back. A lot of alcohol, a lot of alcohol, really? um, okay. a lot of op opioid uh, abuse as well. Because you know, again, this is 10 years ago. A lot of improvements have been made. There's a lot of improvements that still needs to be made. Um, but, you know, back in 2008, 2009, the DOD, the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, they weren't monitoring opioids. This is really before the big opioid epidemic that took mm -hmm. place in our country, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, uh, 
I, I was able to take handfuls of Vicodin all day, every day. And then at night, handfuls of Percocet. And in the middle of all that, lots of alcohol. And I was getting away with it. So I, I look back and I'm, I, I was almost asking for it. How, how do you transition to quitting all that? I mean, obviously that, that develops addiction. So how uh, did you get rid of that addiction into, I mean, you are a very healthy person right now because I've known you for a few years, just hanging out with you, seeing each other together at coffee shops and things. And uh, obviously now you have a family too. We'll get to that in a second, but how, how do you transition from that, that stage of your life to kind of cleaning up your you want to get to it in a second, but can we go there now? I think yeah, my, yeah. my family's a huge part of that. Um, so yeah, let's get to that. I mean, so, so that's why I asked you before you didn't have a kind of steady girlfriend or anything when you were uh, deployed, you came back, you had obviously the getting back to adjusting. And then how, how do you meet your, your wife? Um, my wife, uh, my wife and her family moved to Phoenix in 91, as did my family. And so we went to, we've known each other for, for many, many years. We went to the same schools. We grew up together. Okay. It really probably wasn't until the uh, seventh or eighth grade until we actually knew who each other were. Then in high school, she's hanging out with, her name's Stephanie, by the way. Yeah. And so Stephanie would be uh, walking through the hallways and I'd give her high fives and hugs and I'd see her at parties on the weekends and stuff mm. in high school. And uh, her friends were friends with some of my friends. And so we, we, we saw each other from time right. to time. And then years later, after all of my situation, um, you know, she, short, uh, she, she was married shortly um, after high school and had two, uh, two daughters um, and then ended up going through a, a really bad divorce. And, and myself was going through that really bad recovery. And we ended up bumping into each other. After my recovery, after her divorce, we bump into each other at a Best Buy right up there at, at Ray and I-10. Oh, really? Yeah, the one just <laughs> My son road. actually used to work there uh, oh, a couple of years ago, yeah. He might have worked there when we were there. Uh, <laughs> but we were in the CD aisle when they were still selling okay. DVDs yeah, and that. CDs. And uh, yeah, her kids were running around and she was quick to kind of correct them. And right as she was doing that, I was like, Stephanie? And she popped up and she was like, Anthony. And so... She always tells me, I didn't ask you out. I'm like, yes, you did. Because us guys, when a girl says, hey, do you want to go to happy hour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a girl asking a guy out. So she asked me out and yeah, the rest is history. So I, I really awesome. do think that my wife... So that was a changing turning point for you, basically. See, see, see how, how long, if, I mean, how long were you guys dating before you got married? We did it so backwards, man. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you to be exact. We, we were dating for a few months. Okay. So it was, it was, I mean, you guys knew each other for many, many years. So it was just a reconnection type thing. It was a reconnection type thing. And then right. I, I had just gotten a house. She was a realtor. She helped me kind of mm -hmm. look over the paperwork and make sure I was doing everything correctly. Then I'm like, you, you and your daughter just come. Yeah. I love you. You love me. Let's just make it. Uh, now you work. have four kids. So obviously two are from her previous marriage and two are yours. That's correct. But they're all okay. four of mine. Right. I love right. My no, four obviously. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm blessed. So you got Madeline who just turned 13. Lacey's about to turn 12. Vivian's about to turn six and Vance just turned three so wow man you're a busy man and and my two are just amazing kids and uh yeah god has blessed me with an awesome family and i really do think that um that they're a big reason for me to stay healthy oh yeah and you know it wasn't always that way though it was a it, life is a is a progression right and so mm -hmm. it's a journey it's a process um but yeah, I think a lot of my transition has taken place because of my wife and children. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. Uh, no, I actually, uh, I didn't know. I mean, I knew you have four kids. I think we, we mentioned it before, but I didn't know the story. And I've seen some pictures, obviously, social media and some of the pictures that I've seen. Uh, beautiful kids, by the way. And I know you spend, you love spending time with them, like, like 
good fathers you do you know <laughs> so uh, so uh, let's go to today uh, we we got the history what is your typical day today like i mean what well, today what was your i know you um you stepped down from the wings for warrior right i mean you were the ceo founder you're still the founder obviously but now you're not actively involved with them you kind of the reins to to the ceo who's there in charge now yeah i'm glad you asked his name is david winkler and okay. uh, he's an amazing friend he's an amazing guy and um we actually fought together in Nauzad, Afghanistan okay. in 2008. So um, uh, he was uh, with the EOD unit that we were with, mm -hmm. and he was a machine gunner, a turret gunner. And um, he and I, you know, we were tight like brothers on the battlefield, but we didn't have a tight connection as friends until years later. I bumped into him in New York City at a, at a veterans event, literally bumped into him. And from that moment on, he became a member of the board and really just stepped up and started helping me lead the organization. And uh, he got orders to South Korea and had to leave the organization for a couple of years. But I, I, I told him, when you get back from South Korea, you still have a home with Wings for Warriors if you want it. And at that time, we were transitioning a, uh, another chairman of the board out of his role. Mm -hmm. And right at that moment, I called David and it just turns out he had just landed back in the States. Awesome. And it was during that time is that he, I was transitioning. Uh, here now or he, he's in New York? or where He's is currently he? in Oklahoma, but about okay. to go back to New York City. Okay. All right, so he's leading the, uh, uh, what's your role now? Are you still involved a little bit or basically you're just uh, kind of uh, consulting if they need help from you or? I'm kind of consulting David and the board of directors when needed. Mm -hmm. um, some of them, um, this is a transition for them and there's a little, a little bit of change. You know, mm -hmm. they got comfortable with Team Anthony and now they got to get used to Team David. And so right, with that right. comes transition, but uh, they're all doing a great job and I have nothing but faith in the leadership of the organization. Okay, so, so doing the, um, now you're doing something different. So what is a typical day like for you now? What, what is it that keeps you busy or what do you do every day now? I'm currently going to uh, Ottawa University studying healthcare management. Um, it was a blessing because they took some of my business credits and some of my healthcare credits from the military and shaved off a decent chunk of time for my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. A lot of guys get out of school from the military and they want to they want to work on their education. You, that's usually what what takes place. Right. For me, I had this compelling feeling to start an organization to help others. So it's a little bit backwards, but since I finally am able to pat myself on the back. Um, with, with the success of the organization, I'm now just focusing on school full time. And as the founder and face of the organization, I still do a little bit of media like we're doing today and mm -hmm. kind of talk on behalf of the organization. And then, you know, with our friend Connor writing a uh, book proposal and kind of working on telling this story, but on paper. Mm -hmm. So, so I know you do also some uh, keynote um, speeches um, that you did one recently at ASU for the uh, it was a graduation uh, University of Phoenix. Oh, University of Phoenix. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so they, they had asked me. They do this really cool event um, every Memorial Day where they plant you know the little flags. Yes. Mm -hmm. That you stick in like a flower pot or something. Right. Right. They had fifteen thousand of those. Spell wow. out the words. Um, Their legacy lives on, and each year on Memorial Day they do a new message with planted uh, American flags. And as you, you mentioned earlier, today is Flag Day, National Flag mm -hmm. Day. So any of, anybody that's listening, uh, get your flags, hang them out on your garages, and, uh, and yeah, let's, uh, let's, honor, let's honor all, all Americans today. So, so, so uh, what do you feel? I mean, I, I, um, I'm basically in the last hour or so that we've been talking so far. Um, I'm totally amazed and impressed with your story. And we've kind of summarized almost 20 years of your life in, in one hour, and it's impossible to... <laughs> you know, express everything. But uh, um, when you give the speeches, um, how, 
I mean, are you telling your story? Are you trying to motivate uh, whoever is the audience with, um, obviously the story behind the story is that you should always be willing to overcome obstacles that life doesn't come easy, that, that you're gonna have a lot of obstacles to, you're gonna fall 20 times, you need to get up 21 times, you know. Uh, does that empower you? I mean, I, I think, I think, I mean, I, a lot of people give speeches, but it's like, okay, well, what have you done? I mean, it's like, but when you hear a, a person like you that have experienced what you've experienced and, and give that kind of uh, motivational speech, it's, it's much more powerful. You know, you, you must realize that you have a lot of power behind what you say and you have the power to influence people because you've actually been there. That's, that's beautiful what you just said. Everything that you just said, I, uh, I can agree with and attest to. So, um, it's almost like when I get on stage, like, for example, universities, churches, corporations, um, there's, there's all types of businesses that look for keynote speakers or public speakers to kind mm -hmm. of motivate, inspire their employees, their, their congregations, whatever. For me, when I'm asked to be a speaker, it's usually to talk about my story, right? Mm -hmm. But just as you said, it, it's to empower them, not myself, it's to empower them. Um, to adapt and overcome and to um, embrace the suck, really. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, just, I mean, just like you said, there's a lot of things in life that are going to suck. There's a lot of things in life that we're gonna, we, as human beings, are going to be tested. And mm -hmm. uh, the trials and tribu tribulations of life, um, at times we're going to feel defeated. We're going to mm -hmm. feel like we need to, you know, move on. And, and that's essentially what I do, but it's, it's kind of funny as I'm talking in front of large crowds, it's almost like I'm talking to myself. Right. It's really, and that's what speakers say. I mean, they, they a lot of people when they, when they, the ghost speakers, they say, I'm kind of giving myself a pet peeve, like a speech for myself. And then I just happen to have a crowd in front of me, you know, but I'm actually doing the speech where I'm motivating myself. And, and I'm sure you're the kind of person that is always talking to yourself as you go through your normal life. I, I do that all the time. Like I'm working out or whatever. I have this kind of dialogue all in my mind already, like motivating myself, asking. I have this conversation where I'm asking, you know, business situations or what I'm going to do, trying to motivate myself. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking to anybody and talking to myself. But if I were talking to somebody in front of me, it'll be the same thing. I'm trying to do something that will motivate me and just portraying it to the rest of the people, whoever wants to listen, you know. But... Yeah, I mean, life is not easy, and, and, and especially, I mean, a lot of people will complain about stupid stuff all these days, you know, we're so spoiled, like, you go to a Starbucks and your coffee's cold or something like that, you know, it's like, fuck, I mean, Jesus, get a perspective of your life, dude, you know, it's like, it's like we're, we're in a society where we complain about stupid shit, and then we don't really understand that the real important stuff <laughs> is what you need to work on and complain about or try to fix. And, and I always say that you complain about something and don't do anything about it, you become part of the problem just by not doing anything. And by any means, am I not saying I'm not perfect, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being just like you, well, and I have my ups, I have my downs. But I will say that a lot of my strength comes from Jesus Christ, my relationship with God. And uh, not only am I talking to myself as well throughout the day, but I'm talking to God as well. And I'm praying to Him, and I'm asking Him for strength, and I'm asking Him for guidance mm -hmm. and support all of that. And it's a huge, for me, my, my, uh, relationship with God is, is really a huge part of where I get my strength from and, and what, what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. well, so what makes you happy? I mean, like, like when you think of happiness, is it a cob? I mean, I, I always think that a lot of people have this happiness thought like, Oh my God, I got to buy this thing. I'll be happy or whatever, like material stuff. But really happiness is just a, I call in my eyes, it's a collection of small 
little elements that make you happy. Like it could be an afternoon having a coffee or or going to a movie with your wife or, you know, hanging out with your kids, whatever. Little things that are really non-material stuff. It's just little moments of happiness that actually amount to a, a happy life, you know. So if you were to, to find like like what makes you happy or events or anything, what, what makes you happy these days? Oh, man, time with my children, unhurried time with my children where I'm not in a rush. I don't have my phone, you know, just if, right. if anything, I have my phone in my hand, but it's to take pictures of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I love weekend adventures with the kids. That's, that's definitely happiness for me. Um, you know, just hanging out with my wife and, and not talking about planning or scheduling or mm-hmm. just work, just hanging out with my wife, like, like being friends, you know? Um, having some downtime in the evenings, that's definitely something I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know about you, but every, every day I love going out for a breakfast, getting some devotional time in. And, right. and sometimes that during that time, that's when I actually fill it in with friendships mm-hmm. from guys from the church or other coworkers, mm-hmm. business owners like yourself, entrepreneurs. And uh, lately something that I'm finding happiness is, is surrounding myself with like-minded men. Mm-hmm. Um, we as men have such busy lives and we have to, to wear this hat and, you know, just prove to others that we, oh, we got it all right. together. But you know what? It's nice to be vulnerable. Put down uh, your guard every now and again yeah. and just let guys know what's, what your struggles are. And, and yeah, it's, so, so that's been really comforting is knowing that there's a lot of guys that are in my little circle that have my back at any moment I need them. That's awesome. Well, Anthony, this has been great. Um, I really appreciate the, the fact that you came and joined me this Friday. Um, I've, I could be talking to you forever, and I will, probably off camera or off microphones, but uh, I'm really, really impressed with your story. Um, I, I was dying to, you know, this is not the kind of conversation that I wanted to have when I see you in a coffee shop or something. I wanted to be one-on-one quiet, and uh, I'm... Um, I'm so thankful, you know, that we, we could share this this time. And I'm very, very thankful that you actually opened up. And I know it's, it's kind of, uh, it must be uh, painful to a point to kind of go back 10 years or 20 years or remember some stages of your life that were very challenging. But at, at the same time, by doing that, you're actually helping a lot of people overcome their potential weaknesses and, and, and uh uh, you know, uh, situations, obstacles, whatever they may be going through, I think I think they're going to use you as an example. So, um, really, I really, I really appreciate it. Any any um, parting thoughts on uh, anything that you'd like to add? I just wanted to say thank you so much. The pleasure's all mine, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Where, where can people find more about you? Do you have um, any word that you'd like to send them, social media, websites, anything else? I love sending people to the charity's website because that has my story in, in okay. there, and it, it really just kind of showcases uh, the needs of the veteran community right now and what my organization is doing to, okay. to make I'll, it. I'll, I'll this information to the show notes. Every every show that we, every podcast that we record, we add a page with show notes where we have Perfect. all the links and, and all the information and everything. So Wingsforwarriors.org. Right. Um, yeah. And very similar with, in fact, how the page is open right now. Um, so we'll do that. And then um, to be continued, I mean, I, I love to uh, maybe catch up again in six months or something. I know I'm going to see you around, but uh, uh, we'll maybe get together and discuss something else. I mean, just go through whatever is happening in our lives. You know, maybe you can ask me too. <laughs> and definitely my life is not as interesting as yours, but, uh, you know, we can chat again any other time. Absolutely. No, God bless you. And thank you again. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Anthony.